Welcome to the show this morning. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday morning, June the 26th. We will be joined in a few minutes by Chris Kivlahan. We, um, we are excited to, to chat with him. He's a writer for the Midfield Press. And um, we will get it, be getting to him shortly. But um, one of the things I wanted to talk about today is is where we are as a country. Like, what what are we aiming for? What are we hoping to achieve uh, as a country, as a federation? There there are a lot of ways to look at this. There are a lot of uh, things that that we can consider when we look at our aspirations as a country um you know for some it is we want to see major league soccer succeed success for others is getting more kids to participate getting more people to participate um you know all all of those are are admirable goals um you know wanting wanting the major league soccer um to be a a quality excellent product i mean that that's a good goal we we need we need a better level in this country um we need it to actually strive for excellence um that's good getting more kids playing that's good but but ultimately is that is that really our goal is that is is that the only goal? And for me, when I look at American soccer, the thing that I constantly think about is my goal for American soccer is that we as a country become the greatest soccer country on earth. That that is that should be our goal. If we become the greatest soccer country on earth and we aspire to become the greatest soccer country on earth, if that becomes our mission, then... Major League Soccer or some other league has to strive to be the best league in the world. It has to strive for excellence. That means that mediocrity is not only not tolerated, mediocrity becomes something that is is frowned upon, that we don't scream for parity. We don't scream for average. We don't hope for average teams, average results, every team mired in 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 mediocrity. Instead, we we aspire for greatness. And we hope that our teams become great and that they're filled with great players and we understand that in that pursuit there will be some that rise, some that will struggle. And it will go in cycles. And that some teams will get it right for a few years and then they will struggle. There will be other teams that will not get it right for a while and and they'll figure it out. They'll double down. They'll reinvest. If we aspire to become the greatest soccer country on earth, we will have more kids playing. Why? Because access and opportunity is a large part of becoming the greatest soccer country on earth. Getting more kids into the game, giving them more access and more opportunities to participate at all levels would become a priority because it would be about becoming the greatest soccer country on earth. There are a lot of families who can't afford to pay a lot of money per year to play soccer. But there are a lot of others who cannot. And there are a lot of kids who pay to play soccer who think that because they are paying money that their kids are really good. And they're not. They're terrible. And the the metric that has been used is a socioeconomic standard, not a quality of play. We cannot become the greatest soccer country on earth 
as long as our focus on quality is down to the checkbooks of the parents. To become the greatest soccer country on earth, we no longer need to have a system focused on extorting money from families in order to play the game. There are ways for clubs to create a lot of revenue, to create businesses that support them, to create opportunities to not have to lean on families so heavily in order to do their programming. But as long as our federation doesn't aspire to become the greatest soccer country on earth, that's the easy way out. It's the easy way to get the money is to just say, here's our marketing. Here's, here's our, here's our, our offer to you. You want to play and you want to play at a high level. You've got to come play with us. And oh, by the way, this is how much it costs. We're not providing our kids with elite opportunities to play. We're, we're providing them with expensive opportunities to play. Kids need the opportunity to rise and fall on their own merit, not mom or dad's checkbook. And until our system rewards the, the clubs that produce and develop the best players on the field, until we have a system that honors FIFA compliance in the areas of solidarity payments and training compensation, we will continue to look to the wrong places to measure ourselves, to decide whether we are, we are or are not good enough. Our country could be, and I think should be the greatest soccer country on earth, but we will never get there until we decide as a country and until our federation leadership decides for itself that that is our goal. If that becomes our goal, everything else can fall into alignment and we can unleash the potential for our future players to achieve like no other country in the world. I truly believe that. And, uh, and I hope that at some point in American soccer, we reach that level. Our sponsor this half hour is Dut Kick Brand. You can learn more about Dut Kick at D-U-T-K-I-G brand.com. And uh, when you go and place your order, Use promo code DWSHOW. Again, that is DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. I promise you the stuff that they offer is amazing. The notebooks, all of it. It's worth your time. Take a look at it. DuttKickBrand.com. We'll be right back after this with Chris Kivlahan.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday morning. We are joined by Chris Kivlahan, a writer with Midfield Press. Chris, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we are excited to uh, to get some time to talk with you, and, and uh, you do a lot of work covering all aspects of American soccer. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to kind of chat with you about, uh, first and foremost, is the, the CEO position with U.S. soccer. There's been a lot of chatter um, uh, behind the scenes uh, around U.S. soccer that... Um, you know, we, we need, we obviously need a new CEO. It was announced at the, the 2019 AGM that, uh, Dan Flynn, uh, is indeed finally going to be walking away from the job and, and U S soccer is going to have to hire a new CEO. And, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of names that have been floating around that really want the job. One is Jay Burhalter, and the other is John Collins. What, what, are, what have you seen or heard in the CEO search in terms of a replacement for Dan Flynn? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds certainly from all the chatter that's out there that um, Jay Burhalter is, uh, <clears throat> is the preferred choice. But you know, when I when I when I think about um, how they should look at look at uh, this position, you know, I, I think that you can't really have somebody from the inside, you know, come in and have it be credible. Whether it's Burhalter or whether it's John Collins, you know, who's been on the board for for a long time. For folks who, who don't know who he is, um, you know, it's got to be somebody from the outside. And, and frankly, that's not even really good enough. You really have to make some fundamental changes in, in the way the board itself works. Speaking of the board, uh, which is ultimately tasked with this job of hiring a CEO, um, the structure of the board is is set up in a way that, that protects status quo. It, it, it basically welcomes conflicts of interest. It puts a giant welcome sign to to conflicts of interest and uh probably the biggest conflict of interest uh of all is the fact that don garber sits on the board ceo of soccer united marketing and the commissioner of major league soccer and yet has direct say on who the next ceo is and u.s soccer decisions in general what what do you see with the structure of the u.s soccer board in regards to not only hiring this CEO, but these, um, you know, conflicts of interest and, and other issues uh, in terms of the way it is structured. Yeah, I mean, my my opinion is that um, you know we would be better off if the the, the board consisted of a majority of uh, independent directors. Right now, there are three independent director positions on the board. Only two of them are filled. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you, if you really want a, a board that is making decisions that are free of conflicts of interest, you know, you have to have people who aren't conflicted. Uh, and right now, um, you know, you've got, you know, essentially soccer United marketing is a vendor, you know, to, um, to U.S. soccer. Yet, possibly the most powerful person on that board is the CEO of Soccer United Marketing. I mean, it's you know, it's just clearly conflicted. You look at the leading candidate for the CEO position being Jay Burhalter, who is the brother of the head coach of the men's national team. You know, who he's upstream from, right? Um, you know, he would be upstream from if he was the CEO. Um, you know, it's just, it's rife with conflict of interest. And as you mentioned, it is, uh, you know, it, it's, it appears to welcome conflicts of interest and it's, it's really just not acceptable. One of the things that I think people don't fully understand when we talk about U.S. soccer, it is that, you know, it, it is the national governing body for the sport in the United States, but it is constructed in the way that its rules are written, in the way that it operates, its governance, its its systems, its structure, uh, very much like a country club. 
not like a national governing body. Um, so the points that you bring up about independent directors, um, it, we see this as a pattern. It's it's part of the culture uh, of U.S. soccer to to not construct itself or to look to try to do things in a way that avoid even an appearance of conflicts of interest. They, they've actually written exemption clauses for themselves to be exempt of conflicts of interest um, at a board level. So w- looking at that and looking at this CEO position, how important is it to you um, that this hire be someone with, with little to absolutely no connections to uh, U.S. soccer in in any way, shape, form, or fashion in terms of a a leadership role or history with with the U.S. Soccer Federation. I mean, I think I think that would be that would be nice, um, but ultimately, you know, I think that whoever gets put into that position is you know risks being a figurehead, right? Um, even if they are um, independent uh, of of the conflicts of interest brought in from the outside, if they're just one person who's like that, right? They risk being a figurehead. They risk, you know, being, um, you know, isolated, right? Uh, with the real power lying with the, the status quo, right? Which is why I go back to the idea of, you know, I really think that the stakeholders of U.S. soccer, um, you know, the different, the different, uh, you know, associations, the different, uh, different councils should really think about, you know, the idea of, of a majority of independent directors, you know, uh, as, as a change to the way the board is structured, because until you change the way that whole dynamic works, you know, the, the corruption is very, is very deep. Right. Um, and, uh, you could put one person in there, but you know, are they really going to be the one calling the shots? You know, I think that now if you have a number of independent people who in there are majority, now I think you can have that independence sort of take hold. And by the way, that they may choose not to change anything. They may say, you know what? Soccer United marketing is the best possible vendor for us. Let's keep that going. Right. They may as independents, you know, take a look at that and, and make that judgment. Or they may say, you know, we shouldn't do a no-bid contract. We should bid this out, right? Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't have a CEO whose, you know, brother is the head coach of the men's national team. They may, they, they could go either way. I, I would just be much more comfortable if you had independent people making those determinations rather than people who have, you know, some pretty clear conflicts of interest. And, and all of that being said, um, what do you think about these these revelations uh, from Glassdoor.com about the U.S. soccer employees, current past employees, speaking of the culture and the um, you know relationships within U.S. soccer and, and and the the problems that they have with, in particular, Jay Burhalter, but also uh, CEO Dan Flynn and the way things are run. Uh, do you think that if a CEO is brought in that um, is independent, that doesn't have those conflicts of interest, do you think that by you know looking at some of the comments from the staff that maybe that would be received at least from the ranking rank and file within U.S. Soccer itself? Maybe, maybe yes, some of the board stuff, but do you think they would get some support uh, down down the pyramid from them? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I think what you're just reading. Yeah, and and I think it's important to point out that um, several people uh, have independently authenticated uh, those those Glassdoor reviews uh, as being um, uh, you know reflective of current and former employees, right? So I, I believe Paul Kennedy has done that. I believe the New York Times. Uh, did it, and I think uh, Mickey Turner uh, has also done that. So there's several people who've, who've validated, you know, that they are at least reflective of uh, of of the feelings of the employees. You know, what that just comes down to, I think, in any organization, is it's, it's bad leadership, it's arrogant leadership, it's leadership that's out of touch, right? So look, you could have someone who's conflicted become the CEO, who's just a better leader, and I think it would improve those things, right? 
um, regardless of, of their independence. Um, I think they just need somebody who, who is a little bit more humble, you know, in, in that role than, than what, what those comments would indicate. Um, and, uh, who, who's more interested in treating other people, uh, with respect. Um, so I think, I think, uh, you know, I think that that's probably the issue for the employees. Speaking of conflict, strife, disunity, um, we can keep using all kinds of catastrophic uh, adjectives to describe lower league soccer, soccer in general in America. Um, and I don't think we would use enough adjectives to, to fully describe some of the issues that we see. Um, how do we get from where we are today to to a place where things are in alignment i mean we see um you know nisa is trying to get off the ground um they kind of keep shooting themselves in the foot here and there with you know pr and this that and the other trying to get some things sorted and i know they're trying to dot i's and cross t's and 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 all of that but uh you, you also have the npsl um then you have the founders cup uh group of teams upsl all of these different leagues then you get into regional leagues how do we get from from this place where we have basically uh, league wars to to getting clubs and leagues to to come together and and find a, a way to connect to one another? Yeah, I, I think I think it's really important. You know, it's it's kind of been a, a central theme of a lot of the things that I've written about for the past couple of years is is the need for you know the the independent. Uh, soccer clubs uh, to work together uh, rather than work uh, you know, have have leagues work against each other. Um, so you know, I think that we're seeing some of that start to emerge now, uh, maybe a little bit better than it has has been before. Um, but at least that's what I'm seeing, kind of behind the scenes, is some hopeful signs that that people may start crossing some of those lines and working together more. I mean, you've had you know, several things that I think that have been important over the last, you know, six to nine months in those regards. Um, you know, uh, NISA getting sanctioned, I think, was uh, was important for them. I don't think there would be a NISA anymore if they didn't get sanctioned. Um, you know, those, those investor groups probably would have scattered to the wind. Um, some of them would have stuck around, obviously. Uh, but uh, they, they didn't getting sanctioned. It was important. Um, the Founders Cup, on the other hand, has struggled to get sanctioned. Um, whether it's you know by the you know as sort of part of the NPSL, um, whether it's you know through USASA or other other bodies, uh, they've struggled to to get sanctioned, um, which creates some problems uh, for them if they wanted to use national team you know eligible players and, and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, that, that I think has, has put some of those clubs in a position where they kind of need to figure out what they're going to do next. Um, and, uh, you know, I think on the, on the UPSL side, you know, they've, they've recently been sued by USL and what seems to be a pretty frivolous, uh, you know, grounds, uh, based on, you know, the, the, the using the sort of English style lead names, right? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think they, these groups sort of see that, you know, the, the, uh, MLS USL type of structure, you know, is very organized, right. And moves, you know, moves in the organized way, whereas, you know, they've sort of been independent and pulling in different directions. They can't win if they're pulling in different directions against, you know, a better funded group that sort of has the backing of the federation that, you know, is better organized than them. It's just not, it's not going to work. So looking at uh, where we are, let, let, let's start right now with NISA. Let's dig into that. Cause I know a lot of people, 
uh, have a lot of questions about Nisa. What is it that they've been very mysterious in really putting out information and in, in, in even to the point of club names and all of that? It's, it's really been slow to kind of figure out what what are you learning about Nisa? What what are you hearing in, in terms of you know when they aim to kick kick a ball and and announce clubs and really kind of. Uh, lift the veil for the public to be able to re- get a real good look at NISA uh, as an organization, as a league, as a group of clubs? Yeah, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge um, that NISA did a very poor job from the time they were sanctioned up until about the end of May in communicating with the public. Um, you know, it was understandable given the difficult process that is the sanctioning process um, that they wanted to be quiet during it. Like, I think everybody can understand that given what happened with the NASL, you know, how, you know, how strongly positioned the USL is with, with the USSF and the fact that NISA is competing, you know, at a division three level with a USL property. Um, so I think, I think that was understandable. The, the thing that wasn't understandable was why NISA was so quiet between when they were sanctioned and the end of May. So what ended up happening at the end of May was there was a change in leadership. Um, so John Pruch took over um, as the as the commissioner, um, and you know he uh, you know I was able to do two interviews with him um, that shared some information. Um, the second one a little bit more than the first one. Uh, what we learned in that was that. Um, you know, that they're going to kick off on September 7th of this year. That's going to be when the first the first matches are. We learned that Miami FC has joined NISA. Uh, not clear that they're going to start in the fall because they are committed to the Founders Cup. There would be nothing preventing them from playing in both in theory, right? Um, but, uh, but that's not clear. California United Strikers um, have joined NISA. So there are, there are two known entities, right? that have joined NISA. Um, you've got uh, the, the branding for the Charlotte metro area team has leaked out. And I think we're you know, very likely to see an announcement from them soon based on a tweet from, from their, their leader uh, that indicated this would be a, a busy week for him. Um, and uh, I think we know about San Diego 1904 being in the league. Uh, the, the LA team, is associated with the owner of FC Golden State. Um, not clear to me if that's going to be the brand. I've heard they might use a Los Angeles brand um, for, for the pro team. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the Philadelphia Fury are known to be the team in Philadelphia. That's that's public knowledge at this point. So some of the teams have emerged, but still, still not a lot known about the team in Providence, not a lot known about the team in Connecticut, um, you know, at least publicly known. Uh, there are rumors. Uh, not a lot known about the team in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana yet. So um, there's a lot for NISA to share with the public that they haven't done yet. Um, but we have at least started to learn some things in the last month uh, you know, that, that have uh, improved the situation. In terms of your conversations uh, with, with John, uh, did he share any um you know, aspirations to follow a, a similar uh, path of, you know, regionalization or conference play or, you know, East-West or maybe four uh, conferences for NISA rather than trying to get teams at third division to travel from, you know, Philadelphia to Los Angeles? Or, or is this going to be, you know, viewed as, hey, we're going to go national and everybody's going to have to travel all over the place? Yeah, the uh, the indication, uh, I believe, in the second interview was that the there will be regionalized play. Um, you know, so I don't know exactly how that will work because there are basically three teams in Southern California, um, and then there are, you know there are teams kind of up the East Coast. Um, so so it's not clear to me how how you're going to do that. Uh, but that uh, that's that's what he he said was that. The uh, fall 2019 season uh, would be regionalized play. So, and I think that's ultimately 
what makes sense at the division three level anyway, you probably want to have something like four regions, right? Eventually, once you have enough teams for that. Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest the biggest thing that w- that we have to to recognize when we look at our structure and system in America, we are asking teams to play a continental schedule if you look at it in comparison to Europe. So Chelsea's not traveling to play Bayern Munich on Saturday. That's that's not part of their regular league schedule. They're 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 getting in a bus traveling around London to Arsenal or they are, you know, maybe they have a short plane ride here or there or they're or they're taking a train or a bus somewhere but like they're it's not getting in an airplane and flying you know the same distance as los angeles to philadelphia or miami to seattle so when we think about our structure in america we've got to take that into account and realize that you know even at a first division level we probably should be finding ways to to regionalize similar to like college sports allow the fans to travel allow that pat you know imagine if atlanta united for example was traveling to play another team in atlanta or charlotte or nashville or birmingham um you know new orleans this this kind of footprint where fans could get around and, and really follow the team rather than you know, having Atlanta kind of on an island. Now you're going to have Nashville coming in, um, but but outside of that, you're, you, there's not a lot else around uh, Atlanta uh, in terms of, of teams and rivalries. And the, the the next closest one would be Orlando. And so you have giant you know parts of the country, even in the first division, that don't have that kind of uh, reach or coverage. Uh, the travelability piece for fans, I think, is one thing we miss out on a lot. Um, and so I think it's important uh, with leagues like a project like NISA um, to, you know, to, to take that into account and figure out ways for these clubs to develop uh, local regional rivalries, allow the fans to get out to matches uh, and really, you know, connect with these clubs. Um, you know, it's going to be very difficult for, you know, a San Diego, you know, 1904 to, you know, have any kind of support and any kind uh, of following when they're when they are away at at Philadelphia, and we, and we see this in MLS. I mean, it's it's part of the issue with MLS is a league trying to play continental. Even even our top leagues in this country don't do that. In in baseball, basketball, fo- American football, they don't do that. Uh, do they do they play around the country? Yes, but they have a an area that they primarily play out of, and then they supplement the rest. Um, and so, you know, I think I think that's something that we've got to rethink with American soccer. One other thing with Nisa that I'm curious about, um, I know I know at one point Peter Wilt was involved, and there was you know a a uh, class A shares, class B shares, class C shares, and. You know, third-party ownership of leagues is is a real problem uh, when you look at getting structured for an open system. Uh, you really need a hundred percent of the league owned by the member clubs themselves, so that they they have full autonomy to make decisions for themselves and be able to exchange those shares. Um, you know, when when they're moving up or moving down. Etc. So, um, what have you learned about NISA's governance and structure? Um, have they revealed any of that in terms of where they're at now versus uh, where they were when uh, when Peter left the project? Yeah, my my understanding is, um, and I haven't spoken on the record with anybody about this, um, you know, in quite some time. Uh, but uh, but my understanding is that it's it's generally the same as what Peter described, uh, you know, almost two years ago. Uh, at this point, um, with the Class A shares, which are owned by the uh, the clubs, right? The uh, the Class B shares, uh, which uh, were owned by the company uh, that that Peter and Jack Cummins uh, had, and uh, and then the Class uh, C shares. Which are you know 
for outside investors. So, um, so my understanding is, is that structure is, is, is pretty much intact, but I think that's something that would probably be a better question for someone who's, you know, who's, who's, uh, an insider, um, in NISA is more familiar with that, but the loud, the latest I've heard is consistent with that. So in your conversations with clubs around the country, you know, I know a lot of people looked at NISA as a possibility uh, for their own clubs uh, or, uh, you know, something that they would like to see as an alternative. Uh, right now, it, it and, and the, the conversation surrounding the Founders Cup are the only two, you know, outside of Major League Soccer and the USL projects that are are even being discussed Uh, i wouldn't call either of them viable yet because neither have launched uh, neither have kicked a ball and and you know there's there's no way to tell where we are six months from now or a year from now but looking at the landscape of american soccer um what are you hearing from clubs around the country in terms of interest in in nisa and and interest in in finding uh, a way to play longer season soccer and professional soccer without having to join the the USL uh, system of leagues or major league soccer. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interest in having the professional soccer teams across the country in a variety of markets. Um, you know, that, that would be, you know, in, whether it would be in NISA, whether it would be in a league that followed the Founders Cup, you know, that would be an independent league. There are a lot of groups that are interested. I think one thing that NISA has that's very positive, you know, um, to contrast with, with your point about, uh, the, the ownership structure and potential problems there. One thing that I think NISA is, is getting, getting right, uh, is the, lack of territory rights and um, the lack of a, of a franchise fee. Those things lend themselves to, to a broader system that could eventually have, you know, promotion and relegation, right? Um, the big, uh, the big challenge, I think when you look at USL, there's a lot of, a lot of hope among USL uh, team fans that one day USL will implement promotion and relegation, but you have a fundamental challenge of, you know, if I paid, you know, USL, the league, you know, seven million dollars for a franchise, and I get relegated, and now I'm, um, you know, in USL League One, and that franchise value is, you know, eight hundred thousand dollars. Like that's a pretty big hit that I just took, right? Um, and if I'm, you know, if I'm a U.S. minor league sports owner, um, which a lot of a lot of those those newer groups are, you know, that that might be hard to swallow, right? Uh, so I think Nisa kind of starting out without uh, franchise fees and starting out with no territory rights sets it up well. I and mean, if you want to have two teams in New Orleans, you could have two teams in New Orleans, right? And, you know, and, you know, sort of the, the best team will win out, right? In terms of who creates a better fan experience and who runs, runs the business better. And of course, who plays better on the field, right? Through merit, right? So, um, so yeah, I think... I think that uh, those are some good things that NISA has going for it in their model. Founders Cup, I think you know, there's a lot of appeal in the idea of something that is just you know very separated from the structure of U.S. soccer as it exists. The one of the things that that you know, people who want to see something different don't like about NISA is that it is under the pro league standards, right? So you can't have a Detroit City. Um, as they exist today, join NISA. Right? They would have to take on 35% ownership from an individual with over 10 million net worths, right? Um, with all the caveats that go along with that and the PLS. So, you know, that, that, that is, uh, that's unattractive just based on what the PLS are and how they're set up. Because you look at somebody, you look at a club like Detroit City and you say, you know, that's that's it done right. That should be the model, right? That should be what people are aspiring towards for building something from the grassroots and building it up into you know a club that gets over five thousand fans a game. You know has a has a its own venue that that it you know it uh, it has a lot of control over. 
um, creates a wonderful fan experience. Um, you know, and I think, but the, the PLS, the PLS discourage that, right? Um, they encourage having a wealthy investor, you know, come in and, and make a top-down investment rather than grow from the bottom up. So, you know, by complying with the PLS, Nisa, you know, Nisa has that issue. Um, which I think is a, a valid complaint. The only challenge is that no one has successfully created an alternative outside of the PLS yet, and the Founders Cup has struggled to do that. Certainly have, and uh, and, and that and part of that struggle is, you know, how much is self-inflicted versus how much is, you know, coming from above. And, um, you know, you, you see uh, the dispute uh, being discussed as to why there's been some issues there uh, having to deal with insurance. Um, yet we see amateur teams play professional teams all the time in, in the U.S. Open Cup. Um, and, and Teams have registered professional players within the NPSL and USASA for years, um, and, and have played and lined up against uh, you know amateur teams uh, and amateur players, um, you know during their entire existence. So, you know, I, I find some of that to be uh, a little disingenuous uh, from U.S. Soccer, from USASA and, and USSSA and the NPSL all. Uh, who, who have been involved in some way, shape, form, or fashion with sanctioning uh, the Founders Cup. When, when we look at the, the teams that are aspiring to be a part of something like that and build from the grassroots, and you mentioned Detroit City, you mentioned uh, Chattanooga. When you look at those two clubs in particular, they are a, a prime example of why the professional league standards were written to to provide asset protection um, and artificial scarcity to improve uh, asset values for closed leagues, um, because those those rules are written in a way that really have little to do with a club or with the game of soccer, and it has to do with you know wealth, and and that's used as kind of an arbitrary. Um, weapon uh, against uh, a, a setup like Chattanooga and their recent success in, um, you know, opening up to the public uh, the opportunity to buy shares in the club um, or, or the work that, you know, Detroit City have done in terms of the way that they have built from the grassroots and built up. So when we when we. When we look at that and we look at that structure and compare that to, you know, Europe, for example, look in England, um, the the when the investigation into a club, can it pay its bills? Can it not pay its bills is based on the club. Now, could the owner personally be wealthy and guarantee, um, you know, that their bills are going to get paid? Absolutely. So it's not to say that. You know, having someone worth $10 million is a detriment to your club. And it's not to say that that could not be used for some clubs to say, hey, look, we're viable. I'm Rocco Camiso. I'm worth billions of dollars. I can pay my bills. That is certainly one way to prove that your club is viable. But I think there are other ways like uh, IBAR. Um, and you look at other clubs that have that have found ways to do things without having to just rely on net worth of an owner. And, and that's going to be a piece to me when we look, go, you know, kind of turn the conversation back to NISA, where I see some issues for the growth of NISA, because I think there are going to be a lot of clubs that will want to be a part of that. And especially when you start getting to the level where, where promotion and relegation conversations start to come into play, where that those rules, um, the professional league standards, are are going to be a problem uh, for the growth of the game, and um, you know who knows, maybe some of the the legal challenges will will get those tossed or, or rewritten. Um, but until then, it's going to be a hurdle. Um, you know, when you look at the clubs that that are 
interested in doing something beyond what is available now, uh, short season in PSL, UPSL, um, and, and, and really want to play at a higher level professional, um, you know, and, and by professional, I mean, it does not necessarily mean they're looking to go out and, and put million dollar, um, you know, player contracts on the field, uh, but they may be paying guys, you know, uh, you know, 25, 30,000, 40, 50,000 dollars a year to, to play, but they don't have that owner worth 10 million. Um, how hard is that going to be for a project like Nisa once they get beyond this first wave of of teams that are able to meet those those uh, U.S. Soccer Professional League standard demands? Yeah, so, so I do think that there are, from everything I hear, there are quite a few uh, interested parties uh, when it when it comes to Nisa. Um, but I think the you're absolutely right that the pro league standards need to be readdressed and, and they need to, they need to be written, rewritten in a way that considers other ways that clubs can be sustainable. Right. If we, if we assume the reason for, you know, a 10 million net worth owner at the D three level and a 20 million net worth owner at the D two level uh, is that, you know, the people with those net worths or greater, would be able to sustain a club, you know, and eat some losses, right? And keep keep the club going. Right now, given the amount of money that many Division Two teams lose, somebody who is literally at twenty million net worth isn't going to be at twenty million net worth very long if they own a Division Two soccer team, because um, those those clubs lose millions a year. Um, but uh, but you know, there needs to be other other things considered. So. There's a couple ways to do that. There could be something based on the club itself and its finances, right? There could be, uh, you know, some someone like Detroit City generates a considerable amount of revenue, and if they can operate a business successfully within the the, you know, the revenue that they have, then why shouldn't that be good enough, right? Um, at a at a professional level, you know. Then another way that has been discussed, I think, back when the discussion was around. Rocco Caviso um, putting money into uh, into a league to help it to help it grow. Um, there was the idea of a fund that was controlled by the league, right? That would be separate from an, any individual team, but would back teams, right? Um, and this is something that, from what I understand, has made its way into MISA, um, something called a sustainability fund. I've, I've heard about that. They that's a amount of money that the league has um, that uh, that can back, you know, sort of be a stopgap, right? Um, now, in Rocco's case, he was talking about a very large amount of money that he was willing to invest. Um, but, you know, if you had a mechanism where whatever league system it was had a, a fund uh, that said, okay, if a club's failing, we'll, we'll guarantee that club will finish the season. Um, and the fund will the fund will pay it down, right? Pay their expenses. Um, you know, does that meet what the point of the PLS was? It you know, is the point to to make those clubs at least sustainable through whatever season they're playing in? I mean, I think there are other ways you could get at having the clubs be sustainable, other than you know having uh, a twenty million net worth owner or a ten million net worth owner. So I think that the standard should be open minded to some different ways of accomplishing it. Yeah, Especially I, given given the success of Chattanooga and Detroit, now Chattanooga does have owners in the PLS, but um, you know that should be celebrated, right? That should be encouraged, right? Because it's actually from the grassroots uh, all the way up. So they should really think about changing the PLS to to open up to some other ways of of of, uh, of being qualified. Yeah, I agree completely. I think I think that's a big point moving forward, um, and and and. You know, until some of those changes are made, I think there's going to be a glass ceiling on the ability for a project like NISA to to really achieve its potential, um, and and also serve as kind of a a, a guide and a link 
um, you know, point for other leagues to connect um, beneath them. Um, Right now, I don't see anything above them that they could link to, but definitely beneath them that they could link to. um, You know, it'd be important for something in the, um, you know, de facto division four level because u.s soccer doesn't sanction division four um to to basically kind of connect to nisa at the bottom and then then you can have that conversation about promotion and relegation but then you know now we're we're looking back at how do we handle the professional league standards so when you look at uh you know uh the 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 clubs in nisa the clubs with the founders cup these other clubs around the country, NPSL, UPSL, et cetera. How do we, how do we get them to connect together um, and, and really have a good conversation about doing what's best for soccer in this country? Yeah, I think, I think that there are many club owners who, who, who have a good understanding of, of what that takes um, and I think those people need to work together. You know, um, there are people within NISA who, you know, who I think are, are very reasonable people, you know, who, uh, you know, who, who can have that conversation. There are people in the Founders Cup who I think are, are, are very moderate, you know, type of folks who can have that conversation, you know, and I think you have to let, let, um, you know, NPSL as well, you know. I think those, those folks need to, they need to stop and they need to realize that fighting against each other um, is is uh, pointless. You know, it's not accomplishing anything. Whether you know I get things exactly my way, um, you know, or I have to give a little bit, you know, up and and compromise. Um, if we're united, you know, we're going to be stronger against you know the very organized uh, you know MLS and USL groups, you know, and, and that, you know, that giving a little bit and compromising a little bit, um, from, from those different parties, it's really, it's really like four parties, right? Because the founders club and NPSL are, are sort of separate at this point. Um, so you're talking about ESA, you're talking about founders cup, you're talking about NPSL and you're talking about UPSL and there's more parties than that, but that's, that's plenty to start with. Um, you know, Finding common ground around how they can how they can work together, um, I think, is is essential to all of their survival. And I think it's going to take some of kind of the more moderate voices uh, in those groups to you know sort of band together and you know and convince the others you know that like hey, listen, we need to we need to work together you know because this what we're doing right now isn't working and the direction it's heading in isn't isn't looking great, right? Um, so um, we need to turn this ship around and we need to do it as a, you know, in an organized fashion and a coordinated fashion. So, um, whether that means Visa sits at the top as the pro league, you know, sanctioned league, whether that means that there's some type of greater association that gets formed. I mean, the word association in Visa was, was put there on purpose by, by Peter, uh, and Jack when they, when they created it, right. When they created the concept, they, they saw it as a a um, larger system, right? Of of leagues, um, you know. How do you how do you put people's egos aside and, and and you know get them to understand that like we need to work together and form into that type of cohesive system of leagues, um, you know, for us all to survive and not to get picked off one by one, right? And I think UPSL has now seen because of that you know, lawsuit that I personally think is, is pretty frivolous, um, that they're vulnerable to it as well. You know, they can't just sit on the sidelines and watch NPSL get torn apart and reap the benefits of that. They're like they're next, right? That's how this works. It's like, you know, you watch the other guy get picked off. You're the one who's next. Totally. Totally, totally, totally. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on the show and and uh, you know having having a great conversation about NISA, about uh, soccer in this country, and and you know obviously the CEO search, etc. How can people follow your work and and read uh, the stories that you're covering and, and the work that that you're putting out there? Sure. So um, one way is to visit midfieldpress.com. Uh, most of my my longer form writing goes on there. 
And then uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just my last name, K-I-V as in Victor, L-E-H-A-N as in Norm. Uh, and that's, uh, that's my Twitter handle. So you can follow me on there, and that's, that's a little bit more frequent, um, but in shorter bursts. Well, I, I I love reading your work. I love our chats uh, online, uh, offline, etc. Uh, they're always great, and I really do appreciate you coming on the show, spending some time with us, and uh, and talking American soccer. We look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks, Daniel. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Chris Kivlahan with Midfield Press. Um, I appreciate him uh, coming on the show and, and spending some time with us. Uh, our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. They are changing lives, changing villages all over the world. And you can be a part of that story by going to charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water, lack of toilets, kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday morning, June the 26th. I'd really like to say a big thanks to Chris Kivelham for spending some time with us today. Talking through um, NISA and NPSL and UPSL and, and, and all of the ramifications of unification, as well as uh, some of the issues with the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. Thanks for uh, tuning in today. Um, the... As we look at the the women's World Cup, um, things are are pointing to and shaping up for a big match, France and um, and and the U.S. And uh, I know all eyes are going to be on that. Yesterday, Italy finished up two nil against China, and the Netherlands two one against Japan. And um, you know, it, it's it's one of those. Uh, one of those things where we're starting to, to see, you know, good teams are going to start uh, going head to head and getting and getting knocked out. Norway, England tomorrow um, ahead of uh, you know the the France and, and U.S. match coming up. So um, stay tuned, everyone. It's going to be it's going to be an exciting finish to the Women's World Cup in France. We look forward to seeing everybody again tomorrow. As always, you can watch live on DanielWortman.com weekdays live at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we will be having a big announcement coming up later this week uh, about uh, some uh, really exciting news. So stay tuned for that. We'll see everybody again tomorrow. Goodbye. Goodbye.